Hi, good morning. Uh, today is uh, November the 6th. I'm going to get started. Uh, good morning, Amanda. Uh, good to see you. So anyway, some uh, some quick update. Uh, yeah, uh, I... I'm very happy. I'm not happy with my own uh, performance for the last Sunday's episode uh, for one reason that I'm in the process of moving. Uh, I want to test out this uh, van life thing and the tiny house thing. Basically, I bought a lot uh, near the border of uh, Pennsylvania and the Delaware. Uh, I have been renting for the longest time. I pay a lot of money for rent and all that. But I want to do some alternative solutions uh one of them is a tiny house on a lot and uh also uh also uh also i'm going to uh i build a van uh i convert a van uh with the insulation uh i want to try whether i can live inside this van uh because uh, i intend to travel to uh, Montgomery City, Alabama, to do some research on Rosa Parks, and I also intend to uh, travel to Memphis, Tennessee, to research the uh, 1968 assassination. Uh, more precisely, the circumstances surrounding the uh, assassination of uh, 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 MLK. Because, uh, as I've always said. You basically, as a racial minority, you have to rely on yourself to research the history of yourself, of your people. Okay, you just cannot rely on other people to do the research for you. And so, because of all these uh, commotions, I'm I'm not well prepared for the last. Uh, I was not pre well prepared for the last episode. Uh, you know, I'm talking about four. You know. Enormous, enormously important historic figures: Margaret Garner, uh, Harriet Tubman, uh, Ida Wells, and Rosa Parks. And uh, I did not do justice uh, to these four women, so I want to do some catch up today for them, and then uh, you know, bring. Uh, I'm going to talk about one topics uh, that I actually. Is in the news. It's about the affirmative action, which actually is related to Ida Wells and Rosa Parks. So, no particular segment today. It's just a random talk. Uh, first of all, I'm going to catch up with uh, uh, the four militant African American women that I talked about last week. So, Margaret Garner, really, she is a fugitive slave. She is impacted by this law called the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which requires state officials and the federal government to capture those fugitive slaves, that including herself, her husband, and her three children. I believe uh, she had three children uh, at that incident. So, she did not want her children to be sent back to slavery. So she, she attempted to kill all three of them and managed to kill the youngest. So that's, uh, that is, uh, Margaret Garner. The reason I want to bring it, her up is because, uh, 
the Fugitive Slave Act actually was contested in lower cases. There are lawyers who are defending fugitive slaves, saying the Southerners should not be allowed under the Constitution to come up to the free states to capture their slaves. And, uh, of course, the U.S. Supreme Court back then, uh, the Chief Justice is uh, this guy, Roger B. Uh, Taney, T-A-N-E-Y. He himself is a slave owner, and he sided with the uh, Southern slave owners. So, therefore, uh, at that time, uh, most of the fugitive slaves, if they were found by the federal marshals or the slave catchers in the in the in the free states, in Pennsylvania, in Massachusetts, in Ohio, they will be captured and returned to their slave masters. Okay, so that is important because uh, it is. Uh, it's my opinion is that the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 is unconstitutional, simply for the reasons that it allows the Southerners to go after Northerners, the Southern whites to go after Northern whites for their slaves. That's unconstitutional. Okay. And of course, for his own purposes, Roger Taney, the Chief Justice, sided with this, with the Southern slave owners, and which I believe actually caused the Civil War uh, uh, because of that. So that's uh, Margaret Garner. Now she has, you know, her act, of course, of murdering her own children is certainly controversial. But the circumstances itself is is it's enormous, and uh, and the next one I talked about is uh, Harriet Tubman. Uh, she is a gun carrying organizer of the Underground Railway. Now she is a part of the whole thing that the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 is going after. People like uh, Harriet. Harriet Thurman, if they got captured, you know, there's a severe, severe consequences, right? So, as you can, you know, that's why you can imagine, I want to stress the fact that both Margaret Garner, Garner and uh, Harriet Thurman, they are both for gun, owning guns, ownership of guns, because uh, you need the guns when the laws are totally against you. So you have no choice. You have to resort to the Second Amendment. And the third person I want to talk about is uh, this uh, Ida Wells. Uh, I watched this uh, PBS documentary back in uh, shot in the mid 1990s. Uh, I did not know about this Ida Wells that she is a big advocate of owning guns. So, okay, I talk about you know her quoted. Uh, she has a famous quote like like Winchester back then. The Winchester rifle probably is the top line of firearms she's basically saying you know the wind each black family should own a winchester rifle as plain as that Ida wells if you don't know is the, actually the first person who actually fought against this so-called the separate but equal doctrine once again established by the u.s supreme court in the Plassey versus ferguson uh, ferguson so what happened to Ida Wells is this. She was traveling either within Tennessee or in between Tennessee and another state. 
the trains are separated by smoking cars, a smoking car, and the non-smoking cars. The non-smoking cars are for you know, quiet riders, you know, white women, businessmen, and all that. No smoking is allowed. But for the blacks, they have to sit in the smoking car. And this lady, by the way, she's extremely smart, extremely intelligent. Ida Wells, she sat in the non-smoking car and was asked by the conductor to move. She refused. The, the conductor actually had to get extra help, not the police, other conductors, strong men, to drag Ida Wells to the smoking car. Ida Wells filed a lawsuit against the railway company and won $500 in the lower court. But that particular judgment was reversed by the appellate court. So once again, the U.S. Supreme Court established separate but equal, which is against the 14th Amendment, a war amendment. And soon enough, you have people like Ida Wells fought against that separate but equal doctrine, only to be defeated by the appellate court. So once again, you know, Ida Wells, another major achievement of, of her is uh, she researched uh, the lynching, uh, both in the South and in the North. And the lynching, as you know, is when the government deliberately try not to protect the black people. And that's another reason Ida Wells advocated that each black families should own firearms to protect themselves. So that's Ida Wells. The uh, Rosa Parks story is this. Again, last time I did not, uh, I was not well prepared to explain this because uh, Rosa Parks, all we know is about this uh, Montgomery uh, bus boycott. There's uh, something new every time I, I research this. Is that this, uh, again, this uh, Montgomery City bus code is a product of this separate but equal doctrine. But I did not know until recently that in the same city, a boy, a bus boycott already occurred in August of 1900, which is over 50 years ago, before Rosa Parks got involved. Okay, as we probably all know the, the story about Rosa Parks, there were vacant seats on the bus when Rosa Parks was sitting where she was sitting. The bus driver asked her to move to other vacant seat for which Rosa Parks refused. That vacant seat is an important thing because in the 1900, August 1900 boy, uh, in the August 1900, the law back then is not the same as the law in the 1950s. The law back then is even worse. The law back then is this. Even if there's no vacant seat, the blacks have to give their seat to the white passengers. Period. So if there's no seat available on the bus, 
a black person sitting on a seat must stand up or get off the bus. Now, this I got this from the uh, Kent Law School blog. So I believe it's quite accurate. It's trustworthy. Basically, the August 1900 boy, bus boycott. Back then, the demand is to say that only when there's a vacant seat, a black should be, can be asked to move to that vacant seat. So let me repeat. The 1900 protest is a fighting for a so-called vacant seat provision in the same law, saying that only if there was, there, there is a vacant seat, then a bus driver may ask a black passenger to move so that the white person can be sitting, can be seated in the front of the bus with a vacancy. So that actually explained a lot. As you know, I've been, you know, reading and watching this kind of a history stuff. This is a famous uh, author, James Lowen, L-O-W-E-N. He wrote a book called The Sun Downtown, meaning saying that after the Supreme Court's decision in Plassey versus Ferguson, many, many towns in the, in the USA has this ordinance, has this law saying when the sun is setting, the blacks must leave the town. He called that period, like soon after the decision of Plassey versus Ferguson, all the way to the early 1900s, he called this a period called the Nader period, N-A-D-I-R period. Now it makes sense to me. So in other words, when Rosa Parks was asked to move, she has another vacancy to move to. Because there's a vacancy provision added because of an earlier protest in August of 1900. And what I'm trying to say is that, which means that back in 1900, it's far worse. It's far worse, meaning that even if there's no vacancy, black passengers must give their seat to the white passengers. That's called the separate but equal. That's called separate but equal. So, so, so I want to stress, uh, you know, emphasize that because uh, people will say, hey, why you want to dig so deep into this kind of historic stuff? Because it matters. Okay. I, I, I will give you an example. There is a famous Chinese case called the Yik Wo versus Hopkins. This is a case out of uh, San Francisco, California, involving the Chinese operating laundromats in that city. Long story short, all the publications, all these uh, lawyers, bar associations, laws professors, they all praise this decision, how, saying how great this decision is. Uh, basically, they said this decision is where the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the 14th Amendment equal protection, which actually turns out it's not the case. You see, these people who sing praises on this case called the Yik Wo, again, a Chinese case, they're not Chinese and they're not Asians. 
And I came upon a law professor by the name of a Gabriel Chin, C H I N is his last name. Apparently, he's a you know of a Chinese heritage. He dig he dig deeper into the complete history of a Yik Wo versus Hopkins. What he found out is this: around the same time when Yik Wo was decided. The Chinese Exclusion Act is either in discussion or it's already being enforced. So you will think, how come the entire country has a Chinese exclusion law, and at the same time, the U.S. Supreme Court saying, "No, no, no, San Francisco, you cannot pr、uh, prohibit these Chinese laundromat owners to operate." The Chinese laundromats. So let me repeat: It's a very oxymoronic to think that the entire country is saying it's okay to exclude Chinese, to bar Chinese entering this country. At the same time, the U.S. Supreme Court is saying, "Oh yes,、uh, the Chinese in the in San Francisco, they should be allowed to operate laundromat business." Professor Chen. This Chinese, this is a law professor of a Chinese heritage. He dig deeper into the history, and this is what he found out. At the time, the United States is not the biggest superpower over the world. Back then, I'm pretty sure UK. Is the strongest country, strong strongest nation, has the strongest limit、uh, military and all that. Back then, the United States has a treaty. I think it's called a Billingham Treaty. I can be wrong about this. B i l l i n g a g a m e Billingham Treaty with China, with the Qing Dynasty of China. In that treaty. Citizens or the subjects of both countries are allowed to do conduct business in each other's territory. Meaning, the Americans, the white Americans, can go to China to do business, and the Chinese can come to America to do business. That is a treaty. Though Professor Chen's research finds out this. First of all, back then the U.S. actually want to. Have a good international reputation. They do not want to. The court does not make America, you know, to be a, like a lawbreaker. Basically, saying, "Okay, we the Americans can go to China to do business, while the Chinese cannot do business in the United States." So, the by Professor Chen's research, that decision contradicts to the Chinese Exclusion Act. And also, it's that decision is to say, okay, these Chinese, their rights to operate a business in San Francisco is protected by an international treaty, not by the Constitution, by the international treaty. Therefore, the San Francisco cannot just simply pass a fire ordinance to bar. Wooden buildings where these Chinese laundromats are mostly located.
So, 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 so what, what I'm trying to point out is this. On the surface, those are bar associations. Basically, they are the, they are the trade union of legal profiteers. They all sing praises of the court. They want to add the code legitimacy of the court by saying Yikwo is such a great decision when it's not. When it's not. And, 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 and the very fact that the court is making a decision in contrast to the Chinese Exclusion Act. By the way, the court actually approved the Chinese Exclusion Act. It's a totally by a evil necessity. That means that the court knows that if they sided with the San Francisco uh, city, uh, I think it's called a city supervisory board, super board of supervisors, whatever it is, they will make a bad international reputation for the United States. So that is the true and actual story of what had happened in that Chinese case. So I want to say the same thing about the the Rosa Parks story is that the court started, the U.S. Supreme Court started separate but equal doctrine. And afterwards, as this famous author James Lowen has said, the U.S. entered into so-called the Nader period, where the treatment of not just blacks, all racial minorities, went down to the lowest point in the entire history of the United States. So that actually explained why in August 1900, there was already a bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama because the black passengers will be asked to give their seats even if there's no vacant seat. So when Rosa Park was asked to give up her seat, there there was vacant seat. But she is tired of it. She does not want to give in anymore. Lastly, I want to bring up this Rosa Parks is this, because a lot of people do not know. There is a demand of the 1950s uh, uh, Montgomery boy, uh, bus boycott. Very few people do not know what is exactly is the demand. They just say, oh, the Supreme Court finally made a decision uh, saying the separate but equal is unconstitutional, yada, 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 so we should praise the court. Uh-uh. What the what the uh, organizers MLK Rosa Parks they de- what they demand back then is a very very modest demand. You have to Google it yourself. It's called the, the there should be a fixed dividing line between two races, meaning that. Uh, basically, on those buses, there's some pictures you can see. There is a line where the race should be divided. There's a sign attached to the back of the chair of the bus. That sign is a movable sign. 
meaning that the bus driver can move that sign at his discretion. So think of it, you know, I watch football games because of, think about a moving goalpost. In Rosa Parks time, that racial dividing line is a moving goalpost that the bus driver is going to move at his discretion. And the main demand of the MLK-led bus boycott is to have that line fixed. So when a black passenger got seated, uh, paid his fare or her fare and got seated, he or she need not to be asked to move to another vacancy. Okay, so let me take uh, uh, Amanda's call. Good morning, Peter. I Good appreciate morning. you covering this. Um, I, I just have a question for you. If you're going to cover the Moore v. I think it's Harper, the Supreme Court case that's going to be on this year. about it, It's about... Um, State legislators picking picking the supreme that picking the electors for the it's supposedly a big case. The reason I bring it up is because you know who Stephen Donziger is. No, this is an interesting uh, topic. I want to because the gerrymandering the, the entire thing I call the gerrymandering topic, right? Because right. I saw some of. I mean, again, the, the reason I want to do this, the judicial white privileges, basically the white privilege. They are the smartest ass in the world. They really know how to come up with all this kind of a sneakiest scheme to take advantage of racial minorities. Uh, go ahead. I don't mean, yes, I will look into that. I appreciate you bring this so, up. To so I just wanted to mention the reason I thought of it was because Stephen Donziger, who's the attorney who was being um, persecuted by Chevron because he's uh -huh, in yeah, that case. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So he wrote oh. an article in The Guardian earlier this month about that particular case. I think nice. I want to say the first week of October. So you should be able to find it if you search Guardian and Don Ziger. Uh-huh. 100%. You, you, you see, Amanda, this, this is so interesting. The mainstream media no longer report this kind of stuff. I know. Right, I mean, the Guardian is a British, right? It's just like uh, Edward Snowden's uh, disclosure is done not by a U.S. media, but by a foreign media. Isn't that interesting? Well, they did. They did put it in the New York Times too, I think, but it was um, not very well covered. Okay. After the initial publication, I think. Okay. That is hilarious. I mean, I am going to look into that because I kind of want to do it all together. Yeah. Uh, you, you know what I mean, right? Because I want to see the history. I want to point out, I call it the jurisprudential incoherence, meaning that the way these Supreme Court make decisions, it doesn't make sense because they right. contradict each other, right? So, so, so that's why I, I always have to like do it from not just this particular, uh, 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 Harper case, if I remember correctly. And, uh, and, I want to go back to say what, how they decided in the past and, and all that. So I appreciate that you, uh, brought this up to, uh, bring this up to my, uh, to, to my attention. And I, I will definitely research on that. 
Yeah. So can I read you just a one little paragraph? Of sure. Near the Please. End? So, Please. It, so um, the Moore case, it's, it actually is Moore v. Harper. Um, more, the Moore case would, pr would in practice strip people of the right to fair elections by placing electoral power in the hands of a small group of officials at the state level who set district maps. In a presidential election, these officials could determine what slate of electors gets put forth to the Electoral College, regardless of the outcome of the state's popular vote. In the gerrymandered map at the heart of the Moore case, an evenly divided popular vote in North Carolina would have awarded 10 of the state's 14 seats to the, in the House of Representatives to Republicans, even though they're a Democratic majority population in that state. You know, Amanda, I want to just, again, this is a great topic. I definitely will, will cover. As you, uh, uh, I, I know you are one of those very early listeners. I appreciate the, you know, your attention to my show is that we, uh, we cannot fight biology, meaning that the U.S. is having more non-whites in the population, uh, population, right? Mm -hmm. You know, these uh, racists, these white privilege, they, they knew it. You know, they, they will try to figure things out, you know, and, uh, and try to, you know, reverse the, 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 the tide or whatever you want to call it. They will do the, you know, try to push the envelope and to infringe, um, uh, 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 you know, upon the, the, the rights, you know, in this case, the voting rights of, a. Uh, you know, racial minority, because I think, you know, they know what's coming and they are concerned. Because every time Tucker Carlson opened his mouth about immigration, it's all because he worried that the Republicans will never be in power again. Well, the problem is that, you know, Republicans know better. You know, in many, many areas, they think, they thought they're better. So, so yeah, I mean, you know, I just think the you know these are the areas I'm pretty sure are the areas where there will be some sneaky business, sneaky schemes being devised by these people. And uh, you know, I certainly look forward to to more versus uh, Hopper. I I'll look into that. So you have a great Sunday today. Go go ahead. Sorry. Could, could you say it again, Amanda? I'm sorry. Oh, did I lose uh, Amanda? Just call back in again, uh, Amanda, if you don't mind. So, so I'm going to continue on this uh, uh, still the separate but equal thing. Okay, it's pretty hilarious. They're all connected. So you might have uh, heard this. The Supreme Court has just heard the oral argument about a two affirmative action case. One is in Harvard University, brought by, uh, you know, involving Harvard University. Another one is uh, uh, involving the uh, uh, University of North Carolina. I have not read the in great detail about the oral argument, but I'm aware of this Harvard case since uh, at least two years ago because uh, the Harvard case is a broad uh, by Asian American students. But remember, the organizer is a Jewish guy by the name of Edward Bloom, B-L-U-M. Okay, but going back again, you know, people will say, hey, Peter, 
you're Chinese. Why you care so much about African American histories? I was like, I do for the reason I said earlier. And the second is that, look, this Jewish guy, Ed Bloom, he's organizing this uh, legal challenge against the affirmative action in Harvard admission policy. Okay. He's not Chinese. He's not discriminated. Why he's doing that? So I think I have the rights to research, you know, African-Americans history and other racial minorities history and the white people's history too. And because I, I enjoy doing it. So, so right now the Supreme Court is trying to consider this, uh, whether to have a different, uh, you know, SAT score or different race based uh, considerations in the college com uh, admission, whether this is a kosher or not. This is a hilarious case because I'm going to hold my fire until the Peter? It might just be me, but you're breaking up. Uh, Amanda. Much better. Thank you. I appreciate it. How about yeah, now? I couldn't hear you at all before. Thank you. How about now? It was like breaking up weird. Oh, thank you for, for no for for uh, telling for thank you. Also, I can tell my phone's uh, battery is being low. I did seventeen percent. So let me plug in the power. So okay, so so. Okay, so I'm going to uh, go back to this. So basically, U.S. Supreme Court currently is considering two cases, uh, uh, both uh, about affirmative action in college admission. One is a California, uh, one is a Harvard uh, University case. Another one is from University of North Carolina. So the court observers, most of them are predicting that the U.S. Supreme Court is about to reverse a 1978 decision called the Regents of the University of California versus uh, Backe, B-A-K-K-E, uh, saying that the affirmative action in college admission is unconstitutional. Okay, a lot of folks are watching these uh, uh, cases. It's important cases. I'm not going to jump ahead before the court handed down their, its decision. But I do want to use today's uh, to go back to talk about why this case is related to Rosa Parks and Ida Wells. Okay, as we know, these race-based consideration in today's college admission is to address an unfortunate societal outcome 
That is, the African-American students, applicants, high school graduates, they are less educationally achieved. As a compensation of that, affirmative action is being introduced. Back in the 1978, in that region, I can be wrong about this. Uh, I'm not a lawyer, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it is, uh, it is case is this. In this regions of University of California versus Bucky, this, uh, female Supreme Court justice, the first female Supreme Court justice by the name of Sandra Day O'Connor, she made an interesting comment. Okay, in her decision, I think she voted for affirmative action back in 1978. She's a Republican. She's appointed by a Republican, uh, by Ronald Reagan. She basically says this. Affirmative action definitely is a reverse discrimination. But she's saying that considering all the wrongs that happened to the African Americans, she is willing to give affirmative action 25 years as a social engineering experiment to see whether it will help to elevate, to kind of, uh, you know, to address some of those racial inequality. Okay, so she first acknowledged it is a reverse racial discrimination. And second, as she said, but however, the court should allow at least a limited length of time, in her case, she's saying 25 years, to allow this discriminatory practice uh, continue so that we can see whether it can address this racial inequality. So what I'm trying to say is this. The Supreme Court, once again, is dealing with the evil consequences it itself created. Soon after the Civil War, when the Blacks became free men, many white privileges, they start thinking about how to deal with the free Black people. You can, you can Google it, you can, you find out it's this. Like, for example, in Maryland, it is seriously proposed the free black people need not to pay taxes. I have talked about this in my past episode. There's the reason why white people propose free black people need not to pay taxes. That's because the white people does not want the free Black people to be part of the democracy. Case in point, education. By not having free black people to pay taxes, then their children should not be allowed in the public school. That's the first attempt. Call them no taxes for, for free blacks. It sounds very good, but actually it's a very clever scheme of things. Well, Soon afterwards, the Supreme Court come to rescue by establish separate but equal doctrine in Plassey versus, Plassey versus Ferguson. So therefore, the school 
right there, right then, stop being segregated. And the achievement, educational achievement of the black students is going to be segregated. And that's going to continue for 75 years until Brown versus the Board of Education. I've said in the past, the Brown versus Board of Education is actually a lousy decision, which I'm going to go cover in the future episode. Okay. However, if you think Brown versus the Board of Education have changed anything, you should look again. I remember Malcolm X is not a big fan of a Brown versus Board of Education decision. I do not know the detail. I have to research further. But I want to tell you this. In the 70s, the Supreme Court made another decision, and in my opinion, reversed the Brown versus Board of Education. This is a Mexican case. The plaintiff's last name is Rodriguez. It's Rodriguez versus San Antonio Independent School District. In that case, the parents is saying their children live in a poor neighborhood. The financial resources for their children's school is a fraction of the of those in the public school in the white neighborhood. The parents are saying the elementary education is a fundamental right of their children under the Constitution. And therefore, they ask for equal funding of public schools. This is a U.S. Supreme Court decision. The U.S. Supreme Court disagree with the parents. Most important is this. The San Antonio Independent School District, when they are on appeal, they actually agree with the parents of this Mexican heritage. The school district actually agree with the parents, saying the school funding should be equal, regardless of whatever zip code you are living in. The U.S. Supreme Court say no. The U.S. Supreme Court said this. Education is not a fundamental right of a person. Therefore, equal school funding is not required under the 14th Amendment. Now, remember this. That decision, in my opinion, is a reversal of a Brown versus Board of Education, there's a reason for that. I'm not going to go over that today because uh, I've said before, Brown versus Board of Education is made of five different cases. One of them is from Delaware. The one from Delaware is actually a school funding case. Okay, so whatever the Supreme Court did in this Mexican case is a reversal of that Delaware case, which is a part of the Brown versus Board of Education. Now, think of it along this line. The U.S. Supreme Court in this Mexican case said education is not a fundamental right of a person. Then comes to, then let's look at this uh, regions of University of California versus uh, Baki. 
in that case, a white applicant to the University of California saying, hey, my score is pretty good. Uh, if not for the affirmative action, I would be uh, admitted to the University of California. And this affirmative action deprived me of my admission. Therefore, it's a discrimination against the whites. In that case, the U.S. Supreme Court said, no, 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 it's okay to have a affirmative action and uh, it's okay to have a race as a factor in the admission standard. So it seems to me the U.S. Supreme Court then also affirmed that the education of this white applicant, a college education of a white applicant, is not a fundamental right guaranteed under the Constitution of the United States. Right? So which, again, is going to come to today's case, the Harvard case and the North, uh, University of North Carolina case. So I look forward to he hear what the Supreme Court this time has to say, because uh, the court already sowed the seed of its evil meaning that they first of all established separate but equal doctrine in Plassey versus Ferguson. In Brown v. Uh, in Brown versus Board of Education, they actually agreed with this Delaware's case that unequal funding of black schools and white schools and was segregated is wrong. But in this Mexican case, Mexican case, they reversed Brown versus Board of Education when it comes to school funding, saying that getting an education is not a fundamental right of a person. Right? And they affirmed that in Becky, saying, no, 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 you apply college, this college doesn't like you because of your race. That's okay, because your admission to the University of California is not a fundamental right. Go ahead. Uh, just, just go Pansan. So now comes to today's case. I'm going to find out what the Supreme Court has to say. The court observer saying they're going to about to reverse the Becky decision, saying that no, 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 the school cannot use the race as a factor. So this again goes back to what Rosa Parks and either Wells have fought in the past. And it, we're still fighting the same thing today. And this court is totally incoherent in their decision. And I look forward to see what fireworks they're going to create this time around. So that is the random topics I want to talk about. And again, because I am in the middle of moving and uh, I am trying this van life thing. I'm trying this uh, tiny house uh, concept. You know, maybe having a organized a renters revolution by using the you know the tiny house concept to solve the homeless crisis in America. And so, and uh, my apologies that I was not well prepared last week. And uh, I cannot say I'm well prepared today either. And uh, but at least I want to cover, you know, the story of this great four great African American women, who, all of whom, have advocated for Second Amendment rights, and when the government does not protect you, 
you have to protect yourself by owning guns. So, so with that, you know, that's all I have.